Hello, I'm Cassidy, and welcome to the final episode of Series 2 of Made at UCL, the podcast. This podcast explores the world of UCL through the groundbreaking research and vital community work conducted by our staff and students. Over the past year, we have made 10 episodes exploring 10 different themes and spoken to 34 guests about everything from teaching Spanish to elderly people over Zoom, to saving the planet from climate change, to anti-racist initiatives and universities. I have met some incredible people and learned a lot, not just about research at UCL, but about myself and how I understand the world. To round up the series, I sat down with our producer, Karis Bradley, and we talked about our experience working on the project and shared some updates from a few of the inspiring guests that I've gotten to interview over the past year. We were able to hear from some of the researchers who have huge breakthroughs and from those whose research is still stalled because of the pandemic. We also talked about some of our favorite stories and the things we've learned from being part of Made at UCL, the podcast. So what we want to talk about is kind of how things have been going since we've recorded all of these episodes and what kind of research projects and kind of innovations that we've heard from from all of these amazing people at UCL are still happening so have you had any updates from anyone who are like continuing their their research? Yeah, um, we've had a few updates recently. So we have Anne. Hello, my name's Anne Young and I'm a professor at the Eastman Dental Institute. So Anne was actually creating like a dental implant, a new one. That, it's like a new form of doing it that, that fits in the tooth and makes it much easier. If you have a normal composite for an adult, you just fill the hole that you've drilled. So you've taken out all the decayed tissue and you just fill it up with this composite. The difference that we've done is we've made small modifications that actually mean that the composite will penetrate into the tissue that's actually diseased. So you don't have to remove it. So you can leave it in place. You don't have to drill it out. The material penetrates in, fully stabilizes it, makes it strong again, makes it so that the decay process stops. It totally surrounds the tooth structure, seals it and converts the tooth back to its original shape, its original function, looks exactly like the original tooth. So it's uh, much better for children because it's so much quicker to place. No drilling, no anaesthetic. This is back in episode three. Yes, that's right, because it was all about pain. And then at that time, I believe she had said that it was, they were hoping to get it out like possibly start being used in like three months but then because of covid and everything just kind of got pushed back it's still it's still in progress though so there will be a phase two clinical trial coming up so there'll be access for 90 patients at ucl to see how well the long materials stay in place and then they'll be submitting paperwork to ethical committees for permission to undertake the study hopefully in the next couple of weeks so that's very exciting i would be so sad if this if this this project didn't go through because I, I personally have had some, some dental work done, which is not fun. And so I think it's such an amazing, 
amazing thing that she's created. And I think so many people could benefit. Obviously, so many people could benefit from it. It's, it's a big, big improvement in the dental industry. So yeah, I, I am excited to see where this goes. And hopefully it'll create some momentum now. Yeah, because so many, so many people weren't able to go to the dentist. In COVID, I got my first ever filling, which I'd never had one before. It was very stressful. And then all of the dentists were closed because no one could get any P- PPE. Like all the dentists around me weren't able to reopen. So I had to wait like a week with this huge hole in my tooth and it was so painful. And there must be loads of other people who have kind of like unchecked things because they weren't able to go to their regular dentist appointments. So it feels like if there was ever a time to get a really quick or relatively painless way of doing fillings, it is definitely now after two years of all of us letting our teeth decay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I had the same problem. I didn't I didn't get a filling. I had to get a root canal. But, you know, filling a root canal, they have to put those shots in your mouth. I, I don't know about you, but I am terrified of needles. I can't imagine how terrifying that would like be for a child as well. Like, Anne's project is one that like was really, really dramatically affected by COVID. Can you remember any projects that we kind of talked to people about who had their work disrupted by COVID, but then that actually ended up not really being a good thing? But like, did any was anyone able to kind of like innovate out of of that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So Carrie and Lily, I'm Professor Carrie Jewett. I'm based at the UCL Knowledge Lab, and my name's Lily. I am a doctoral researcher attached to the InTouch project at UCL. Who were working on like InTouch and Touchy vocab. The, well, the ultimate goal of the InTouch project is, well, there's a few. One really is to kind of get a sense of the technology might remake what touches. So it's, it, at the moment, there's, there's a lot of, computer scientists, engineers, and human-computer interaction designers really galloping along, pushing the boundaries of what digitally-mediated touch can be. And so ultimately, our goal is to have a conversation with the design of future digital technologies that involve touch. Touchy vocab, it's one of a set of resources that I've been using in my research into loneliness and touch. So it's a, it's a vocabulary that's kind of formatted so that it can be printed as a, a series of sticky labels, but it's divided into two parts. So on the one hand, you've got types of touch and tactile interactions. So some examples might be elbow, hug, poke. <laughs> and then on the other hand, you've got words that describe tactile qualities and some examples might be there coarse glassy frothy earthy things like that and the vocabulary is always evolving and the idea is that it will be shared online as a resource that other people can also add to and build on so the touchy vocab one I remember that it was it was first an issue because originally it was supposed to be a workshop and it was supposed to be in person and they started out I think doing that 
that at the beginning. So in the middle of them doing the workshops and like having these like things where they're touching all these things and doing this, they had to all of a sudden switch it to doing remotely because of COVID-19. And so that put a big wrench in it, but it ended up being a really good thing because they ended up figuring out like, because people were able to use personal items from home and realize this like connection people had to like things that they had. And it became like a much more personal project as opposed to just like touching objects that didn't have any significant meaning to them. Do you know where the project is now? The In Touch project is part of like this huge umbrella type thing where they have all these different mini sub projects going on within it. And now they have the new online design tool, designing digital touch toolkits. So the In Touch project, which was still like in the middle of COVID when everything was shut down and no one could go see their friends or anything unless they happen to live really close by and get together outside for a walk. So that whole thing, because they, they studied like digital touch and the use of digital touch, and it was like comforting for people like during COVID. And I think that's part of why this project in general has been able to thrive because people were so deprived from touch for so long that especially people that lived alone and away from people they cared about. So they have a new online digital touch toolkit thing that they're working on right now, which is really exciting. But they have like seven new papers or something that came out since the last time we talked and just seem to be doing a whole bunch of things. So they seem to be doing quite well. Yeah. And they've also got a cool new podcast, which is all about the interdisciplinary nature of social science, which is produced <laughs> produced by me. So this is a little uh, self-plug, I guess, which is really cool. It's coming out in January and it's kind of looking at loads of different researchers at UCL who are combining different disciplines like coding and anthropology and all these different areas with social science and kind of helping that to grow both the discipline that they're working in and social science. Nice. So speaking of how COVID in a way interrupted things, I got an update from Susan, who people might remember from the episode that we did about recovery, which was episode nine. I'm Susan McGrath and I have two roles at UCL as an academic at the Institute of Education. But across the university, I think I'm probably better known by an informal title. I seem to be the UCL community gardener. And I got a little update from her just to say that they've got a new team of volunteers. And so it sounds like they've been really busy. They have had to cut out all of this dead wood from trees and shrubs that haven't survived without being watered when campus was locked down. And they've actually found during this process, they've actually found some plants that have grown from where seeds from like the original plants in the garden had germinated. And so they cut back all of this dead wood being like, oh, no, we're getting rid of all of the garden. And then they found all of these new seedlings and things. So that's really cool. And then in, in Sarah's garden, which was the one that we talked about being the memorial garden, um, actually quite a lot of the planting has survived, but it has been quite badly impacted by strong winds, which have damaged a lot of the wooden structures. So uh, Susan has kind of reframed this as an opportunity for volunteers to develop their woodworking skills so they can start replacing some of those wooden structures and building some more kind of um, housing for the plants and things. They're planning their final gardening session for 2021. 
and they're going to be planting lots of spring flowering plants and bulbs and just starting the cycle all over again which I think is is really cool um and we've got some photos which are on the website so you can see some of the volunteers hard at work in the garden and you can still sign up to volunteer you can do that by getting in, in contact with with Susan and maybe join join in time to plant a whole bunch of spring flowering plants which I think would be nice yeah that sounds that sounds like fun too and that's really I think it's really cool that they saw new things plant and like start to grow after COVID and 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 being left alone for so long I guess nature takes over and then they decides its own type of (laughs) strategy I don't know I'm curious to see like what kind of plants did grow like what what were the things that like the new stuff that was growing I don't know enough about plants. What I can tell you is that there are some plants with some green leaves. (laughs) (laughs) Narrow it down for you. Yeah, there's not a lot of plants with green leaves, so it like helps. (laughs) (laughs) So have you have you heard back from any other projects? Any other updates? Yes, 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 yes. So Helga, who was also in episode one of our podcast. I'm Helga Wiedemann. I'm Associate Professor of Robotics, working in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at UCL. So they've been working with Naked Prosthetics, which is like a U.S. company. Who do body-powered partial hand prosthesis. So they look into prosthesis when you only lost... A part of your hand, not your entire hand, so part of your finger, for instance, and they develop devices that can be attached to the remaining stump and then be actuated not by electronics but by other movements of the body. So they are entirely mechanical devices. So they have now agreed to provide us with a, a number of prosthetic devices that will be fit to patients uh, that are suitable. And we will be then integrating our haptic feedback system to try out in the real world how our haptic feedback system works. And it's even more exciting to see that we are now working with these industrial partners who also believe that this could be beneficial for patients that their devices are made for. So that is very much the latest update and that is happening at the moment So I'm waiting almost every day that there should be something arriving at UCL, a body-powered prosthetic hand from Naked Prosthetics, and very unexpected because that was not the plan, but it is a very nice addition to the project. It's it's amazing this idea of like this body-powered prosthetic because you think of something that's sensitive to touch and that it's able to work with just connecting to certain parts of the hand and then it's able to move and touch because you always think of that I don't know I always thought of that as like electronic which I guess it has been in the past but that they're able to do that through just like connecting with the body that's just so cool I don't know I I'm so amazed by all of his work and the soft haptic project and all of that that's going on that story kind of reminds me a bit of the mission to Mars story that we covered in the episode about Mars except it's kind of the opposite because they're waiting for this thing that they've built to be sent off into space that was episode six and we talked to Professor Andrew Coates who was describing the Rosalind Franklin 
So I'm principal investigator of the PanCam instrument on the on the ExoMars Rosalind Franklin rover, which gets to Mars in 2023. We proposed that instrument in 2003, and, and we've been build, working on it since then. You know, getting the technology right, building it, and getting to the state it is now, um, and ready to go to Mars. So we're launching um, in September next year, um, September 2022, and then landing on the 10th of June 2023. So that is the date for the diaries. So with that, we hope to get the first UCL images from from the surface of Mars. They spent all of this time, like the project, they've been working on the project for years and years and years and years, and then they've made this bit of equipment and then it's being sent off. And I guess it's kind of like, it's a similar but the opposite kind of excitement for this new technology, which is going to arrive because of these people that you've, you've met who are kind of working on a similar kind of thing. And then they're just waiting for it to launch. And then if it launches, like, because they don't know what's going to happen. Like, is it going to make it there? Is it going to, everything going to like work properly? Is it, you know, and you put years of your life into that and and so many hours and time. So that's, that's exciting, but also like terrifying. You know, you just want it to work so, so bad. And I imagine it will, but you never know with these things. And then also like, I don't know, you get to know those people as well that you're working with for so long and you're like in it together and then, and then, then you're done. It has been great to hear from some of our guests to see how their projects have continued to develop since recording their episodes. But we also wanted to give you a little behind-the-scenes look at our own experience of working on the podcast. We met through this project sort of around this time last year. So I was brought on as a producer because I've been working on the coronavirus podcast and then we had to choose a host and we actually had loads of people apply, which was really cool. What what made you apply to be a part of the project? So I applied for this because I had worked on the podcast previously. So the summer actually before this season started, I had done uh, the last two episodes I was assistant producer for, and I really enjoyed working on it. And and it kind of like aligned with this idea of, of something I wanted to do, which was to make research more accessible. And I had such a good time working on it that I, when I saw that a host position was open, I thought I, I'd go for it. And also because I hadn't been a host before. So it was an opportunity for me to try try it out and see see how I like it. Was it what you expected? I I didn't know what to expect really. I thought it was going to be more intimidating talking to academics, but but it wasn't really when you think of interviewing academics, especially these people that have gotten into these, you know, amazing positions and and to have uh, very prestigious kind of stuff that they've done, but but they're all just people, you know what I mean? So like you talking to them is not it's not as intimidating as you think it would be. And actually, you know, a lot of times they are nervous talking to me like because they're being on a podcast and maybe they haven't done media before or they have, but they don't enjoy doing it or whatever. And I and I I find that endearing. Like, and I also love like when I'm able to make someone someone who was nervous about doing it, like that they they said afterwards, oh, actually, you know what? Like that wasn't so bad, and like I actually enjoyed that, and that was fine. Like that that always makes me like feel good. Like okay, I've done my job. I I was able to make you feel comfortable, and you were able to have, like talk about your work in, in a way that you felt confident about. Do you have any favorite interviews where either the kind of like the subject or the person, the way that they were talking about it, you were like, oh my goodness, I did not know this. This is incredible. Yeah. So Manish, who was in the Save Us episode, episode four, 
My name is Manish Chand. I am Associate Professor of Surgery at UCL and Consultant Surgeon at University College London Hospital. So they use AI technology to do this very like intricate kind of surgery that's to get rid of bowel cancer. Currently, how, how we work is that the patient is surrounded by the robot, which looks like a big spider sort of coming down on top of it with multiple arms. And I may be in an adjacent room, so I'm at a remote distance. And what we've tested is now the use of 5G surgery and how we can use telecommunication technology to enhance our surgery. So, so in reality, if I wanted to, not that we were anywhere near doing this or would want to do this, I could be sitting in London and I could be operating on a patient in New York. I mean, that, 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 that technology is there and we've tested it and it works. And the use of AI and surgeries and stuff is a scary, is always, I don't know, just talking about it and not knowing anything about it sounds like very scary. But after talking to Manish, I'm very like pro using AI technology and surgeries. I mean, the way that they're able to do such precise cutting and I mean, you have to be precise when you do these kinds of things and it's so tiny. They're, they're just able to do such a precise job and it saves people's lives. And it's amazing that they can also do it. The other thing was talking about doing it from afar. So you could be like in another country and like be performing surgery on someone, which of course that is a big deal if if uh, the area that you're performing in doesn't have a particular uh, surgeon that can do that kind of stuff. So I am all for the advancement in technologies and surgery. What about you? I had the exact same reaction to quite a few of the medical stories that we kind of covered. So when we interviewed Michelle and Simba about Neotree My name is Michelle Hayes. I am an Associate Professor in Community and Population Child Health at the Institute for Child Health at UCL. My name is um, Simbarashi Chimoya. I'm a paediatrician and a lecturer at the University of Zimbabwe in the Faculty of Medicine and Healthcare Sciences. My main project is the the Neotree, which I've been leading as principal investigator over the last seven years. I've been involved in the Neotree project as a principal investigator for Zimbabwe for the past three years, since 2018. There are so many electronic healthcare record systems that ask for data to be collected by healthcare professionals at the bedside, but the Neotree aims to actually use those data at the bedside to improve care and then interviewing Owain in the recovery episode. I'm Owain. I'm uh, ear, nose and throat surgeon, uh, and I'm the founder and and CEO of Synapsis. Very simply, Synapsis is a communication platform that makes it easy for clinicians to communicate with one another uh, and share information. Before Synapsis, what would happen is that the patient would be sent into a hospital or sent into an outpatient clinic. With Synapsis, they can, right there and then, they can get advice from a specialist. And then most recently in the last episode about awareness and activism, your interview with Emilia. My name's Emilia Molimpakis. Um, I did a PhD and a postdoc at UCL, which I finished about a year and a half ago now. And there my specialty was cognitive neuroscience and linguistics. And uh, I am now the CEO of Themia. 
about creating a video game uh, to identify depression. So for instance, you go to your GP, you express uh, that you're feeling low and they'll say, they'll typically ask you, okay, on a scale of zero to four in the past two weeks, how sad have you felt? How tired have you felt? These questions haven't actually changed in decades. They've been the same since the 60s. Some of them have been used since uh, World War One, which uh, is quite shocking. And so that's where FEMIA essentially comes in to address this issue. The thing that I think that I took away from all of those stories was not necessarily that like they'd created or were working to build this cool new thing that was solving a problem, which obviously is amazing. But something that came out of all of those stories was the way that medical development seemed to work, where people seem to be really stuck in like this is the way that we have to do things and how much it seems to how difficult it seems to be kind of like to break out of that thinking and so you have to be able to see that something is not right and then you have to come up with an innovation and then there's so much work that goes into convincing other people that that innovation is is going to save lives everyone kind of had to talk like told us about their kind of journeys of trying to persuade people that this incredible groundbreaking piece of technology was really really necessary which we're just hearing the tail end of it so we're like of course of course this is amazing but they've had to do so much work to to convince people that they need to adopt it and it was that kind of like way of thinking every time it surprised me (laughs) but now like looking back at it we just we heard it again and again and again yeah no it's amazing what these people are also like able to come up with and I guess it's also because they're doing something that no one has ever done before or even thought about doing before so it's this completely new concept which is difficult for people to sometimes get on board with because it's it's a risky thing right Was there was there a story that we covered in the series that like changed your opinion about something? Yeah, Salhili definitely changed my opinion. So she was in episode five, The Cost of Freedom. My name is Sahili Databurton. And in my research, I look at the politics and economics of science and technology. So she talked about how like all all those Bluetooth things that you have in your home, including uh, Alexa, can be hacked and they can be manipulated. She also talked about like children's toys as being one of those things. So it it was all very uh, scary, honestly, because she just made me think of things that I just, I don't know, I guess I was just really naive about. I didn't know that I, 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 I use, you know, different Bluetooth things. You know, I have Bluetooth headphones, for example. And, and now I get creeped out because, for instance, like every once in a while, I guess, uh, the headphones, I'll hear them like go off or something like randomly or like start saying something. And I'm just like, is somebody messing with it? Is somebody like hacking into my headphones? But I, like, I don't know why anybody would hack into the headphones, like what they can get from that. It's just now I'm like a paranoid person after, after listening to that. Not to say that like the information that they shared was not important information to know because it definitely is. And I've definitely told people to listen to it because I'm like, you need to understand that this is a risk and this is a problem. But yeah, it's definitely made me more paranoid in general (laughs) I kind of feel like that is exactly what Sahili wanted in the interview she talked about like just wanting people to like really understand what the technology is doing so I think I'm hoping secretly she'll be kind of pleased that she's planted this seed of doubt in your mind and now you're like questioning everything (laughs) 
<laughs> Did it, well, I mean, I guess you, you know, you studied that in school, cybersecurity and so forth. So it wasn't like a surprising topic for you. Well, I mean, it's one of those topics, isn't it, where, and they just keep coming up with new ways of doing terrifying things, like the story that Silly told about the children's toy, and how, um, especially now that everyone's working from home, like, if you can hack one of those, you can hack into people's quite secure networks. I was like, yeah, that was, that was a lot. But I love that whole episode. I thought the interview with Sarah Young about the Russian prison was so interesting. And I like actually went away from it being like, right, I'm gonna go read a whole bunch of these books that she's mentioned because she talked about them in such a way that made them sound so uh, so much more readable than I ever thought that Russian literature would sound. That's definitely one of the episodes that really stuck out in my mind. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's not something that I would have ever thought to read about or had like a particular, you know, but 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 she she definitely got me interested. And I I loved how like relevant she was able to make it to life now I thought the stuff that she was talking about about how like Russian literature kind of has this history of being written in prisons which is quite grim but it means that for like modern activists now there's this kind of like resource and so I've always thought of it as something like really abstract and entirely separate from like modern life but it was really really interesting to see how she's like no it's really important that we study it now and obviously has written this book my book that's coming out is called Writing Resistance, Revolutionary Memoirs of Schlüsselburg Prison, 1884 to 1906. Uh, so that we can kind of understand more modern treatment of prisoners and things. So that was really interesting. And these are the kind of things, I think these stories really changed my opinion because obviously my, my back, background is kind of more science-based, but then there was this interview, there was the interview that you did with Seb Coxon. So I'm Seb Coxon. I'm a member of the German department, which is part of this bigger school of languages. We call it SELKS. And my speciality is medieval literature. And that's what I do my research in. About beards in medieval Germany. There's this fabulous German heroic epic. So kind of like the German equivalent to what you might say Homer or Beowulf in, in Anglo-Saxon. And I've taught this text for a number of years. My question has always been at that point in the class, what do you think the point of referring to the beards is? So I started doing that in that class. And then because I did it in that class, I kept on noticing whenever beards were referred to in other stuff I was teaching. So it's actually because it became a kind of habit of mine, almost like a running joke. You know, I'm going to ask this class about beards in this story and see what they say. The idea that that would in any way be relevant to my life but it was such a great conversation because I remember you talking about kind of your own drag background and that was a bit that I was really sad that we couldn't fit into the actual podcast but it's yeah the that conversation made again something that I would think would be like so far from being relevant to my own life actually something that I, I would now like to read a book about medieval German beard representation or descriptions. So one thing that we did with each of our guests is we had like a theme question that we would always ask our guests. So if you've been listening, you've noticed that we, we have that. We'll ask like, what does this theme mean in relation to your work? So our theme for this episode uh, is evolution. So what does evolution mean to you in relation to this podcast? I think that I've definitely gotten better at editing in the past year. 
So I think that for, for me, evolution is like improving and learning new things and kind of being inspired by the people that we've talked to, to, to try and do things differently every time. And crucially, see what works and what doesn't work and then take the things that do work on and like the kind of feedback and advice that we've been given from people who've listened to the podcast and friends and stuff. That is what I would say evolution has been in the context of this podcast. What what does evolution mean to you? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's been the same for me because I had never hosted anything before this. And so it was a learning process and interviewing people was a learning process as well because I, I I didn't know what I was doing when I started out I've learned I've I've, I've been evolving uh, I feel like as I've gone through as we both have we've been in this evolving process so that's been cool and then also just evolving people's people's work so this episode we've been able to see how or talk a little bit about how some of the research has evolved and how people have either you know continued to progress in what they were doing or like as offshoots into other things and yeah so yes <laughs> that is the end <laughs> you outro music (laughs) cue yes cue outro music well that's a wrap for this year from me Cassidy and our producer Karis and the team here at Made at UCL we wish you all happy holidays and don't worry Made at UCL will be back next year to bring you new breakthroughs, discoveries, and innovations that help people and the planet. Thank you for listening to Made at UCL, the podcast. To listen to previous episodes or find out more about life at UCL, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash may-at-ucl or subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. This episode was presented by me, Cassidy Martin, and produced by Karis Bradley. It featured music from the Blue Dot Sessions and additional sounds from freesound.org. You also heard the voices of Sarah, Anne, Carrie, Lily, Susan, Helga, Andrew, Manish, Philip, Seb, Michelle, Simba, Owine, Sahili, and Amelia. Thanks to all our guests across the series for their time and expertise. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insight, and expertise through events, digital content, and activities that are open to everyone. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed interviewing our guests each month. Thanks again for stopping by. Take care of yourself and each other.